As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, please. <clears throat> and upon finding that, please, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to the scripture. I pray that you would enable us to hear, to listen, to understand, that you would take away any resistance we have to hearing it. God, we confess that our sin gets in our way, our self-centeredness, and also just the, our natural weakness of minds wandering and thinking of other things. And so, Father, I pray that you would overcome all of that in us and enable us to pay attention um, to that which we read. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis Chapter 15, please. Hear the word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, carcasses Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And, you shall, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoldering fire pot, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, uh, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, uh, we notice, and if you've been here for the last number of weeks, you, you will know why I noticed this. But I notice in verse 18 that what we have here is that God cutting or making a covenant with Abraham. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying. So, so what we're interested here is to, to learn about God's covenants, to learn about covenant, uh, because that is the way that God uh, reveals his relationship to us. The way we understand that relationship is by way of covenant. 
covenant. That word should spring to us how we relate to God, how God relates to his creation. There are a lot of words that describe relationships. For instance, if I use the word marriage, that should bring to your mind how a husband and wife relate to one another. You go, yeah, I I understand something of that relationship because of the word marriage. If I use the word business, if you have a business relationship with someone, you, you get a sense about what that is. You know the parties involved, you know how they treat each other, how they feel about each other, you know the seriousness with which they take that relationship, you, you, you know um, you know the responsibilities in it. You get a sense about that. If I say family, you, you, you get a sense of relationship there. Who's involved, what the responsibilities are, how they feel about each other, the security that may or may not be there and all of that. You get a sense of that. Those words spring to us something in the context of relationship. If I say you have a political relationship with someone, you have a sense about what that means. And so when we hear this word covenant, it should spring to our minds a sense of relationship. And when we hear about a covenant that God makes with people, then it should again spring to our minds, oh, I know, I know something about what what that is, there's, there's some sense of God identifying himself to his people, saying this is who I am. There's, there's a sense in God defining then the responsibilities of people by way of their relationship with each other and their relationship with him. There are some promises that are made. You go, oh yes, people promise things to God and God promises to behave in a particular way towards that people. There, there are sanctions, that is, if those promises are broken, then we understand that there's penalties for that. If, if those promises are kept then we understand that there's blessing, a reward for that. We, we know, too, that it's likely, as in, in marriage and other kinds of, of, of words that describe relationship, that there's a, there's a sign, there's a seal to that, that, that something will confirm that covenant so that we can look at it and say, oh, yes, I remember now there is this relationship. So covenant is really a relationship, a relational word, like marriage, like business, like family, like political. Those, those are the kinds of words that speak to a certain kind of of relationship. And so what we're after here is is this sense of of relationship with God. How do we relate to him because of how he's defined that and how he relates how he relates to us. We've we sprung off this passage in 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 uh, Psalm 25 verse 14 that says the friendship or the secret counsel the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will make known to them his covenant. And so we, we, we realize that part of this covenant relationship, which is really, I don't even know what the word is, uh, astounding, um, uh, breathtaking, I think would be the right word. It's breathtaking to think that God says that he would extend friendship to us. One of the things that should come to our mind when we think of covenant is a sense of friendship, a sense of intimate sharing. That's what God says. And we realize that in our day, the word friend and friendship has been denigrated a good bit. You become somebody's friend by a click on your computer, right? And you can unfriend just as easily. In a covenant, if you unfriend, you die. Because you've made this covenant, this commitment. And if you break that relationship, you only break that relationship, you see, by death. That's the penalty for breaking the relationship. And so friend, in a biblical sense, is a very deep, serious kind of matter. You want to know someone before you friend them. So 
God, before he friends us, before he says, I want to be your friend, I'm going to extend this friendship to you, he reveals himself to us. He knows us intimately, and he says, in the midst of this relationship, this is how you'll be, and this is how I'll be. So we understand completely what that is. And in taking those vows and promises and trusting God in this relationship, we're saying, yes, I trust you. I trust you. Breathtaking, isn't it, to think that it's with God that this relationship, this relationship called friend, friendship, is established. And it's breathtaking, not only because it's God, but because it's us. And we realize how unworthy we are to be in this relationship, in this relationship with him. No doubt that was true for Abraham. As God makes covenant with Abraham, it's no surprise then that Abraham is known throughout the scripture in a variety of places in both the Old and New Testament as the friend of God. Now all of this doesn't start right here in Genesis 15. I read it here because this is the guts of the covenant and we see it and it will help us in understanding that. But it really begins over in chapter 12. We read some of this in our responsive reading this morning. These first verses as God comes to this man who at this point in time is called Abraham. Now I'll refer to him as Abraham because that's what the New Testament refers to him as even in the midst of, of this time in his life. But, but uh, Abraham was his, his name. It will change to Abraham and we'll see why in just a little while. But, but God confronts, God comes to Abraham in chapter 12. Again, a very startling confrontation in the sense that, that we ask the question, why this man? I mean, it just keeps coming up. It came up with Noah. Why him? Why in the midst of this, this, this generation of Noah's where everyone had thoughts and inclinations of heart that were evil continuously, how did Noah escape that? How did Noah come to be known as a, a righteous man who was blameless in his generation and all of that? How, how did that happen? And we realized that only happened because God's grace has come, had come to him, God's favor. And we asked the question, why Noah and not anyone else? I suspect Noah asked that question from time to time. And we simply don't have an answer for that other than it was this work of God. He is the one who chose Noah and his family out of all out of all the others, and that manifested itself in righteousness and blamelessness and all of that. And now he comes to this man, Abraham. It's, it's quite a surprise to us. I mean, you can sort of get it as you're, as you're reading through it. You see, all of a sudden, he focuses on this guy, Terah, who has three sons, and one of those sons is, is Abraham, and he mentions Abraham's wife, who's Sarai, who can't have any children, and they're old by this time. But, 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 but you, so you say, maybe something's going to come, but we don't know why. Why? This one, it wasn't, it appears, because of his righteousness, because we don't hear anything about righteousness until chapter 15. And then God doesn't say, because of all that you've done, you're righteous. He says, because you trust me, you're righteous. I'll count that, I'll consider that, I'll impute that righteousness to you. But, but it wasn't anything in Abraham that, that, that got him to be declared righteous, if you will. His faith turned away from himself and looked to God, so it wasn't anything in himself that, that he could claim, that's why God said I was righteous. And faith always turns away from oneself. It never boasts in oneself. It never depends upon oneself. And, and then, so how can he be declared righteous and not because of his own righteousness? It wasn't that. In fact... Joshua speaks of Abraham in Joshua chapter 24, at least Abraham's family, and says that basically they were pagans. They were, they were worshipers of, of probably the moon. I mean, this is the kind of stock he came from. This is what 
life was even by the time Abraham was born. And so it wasn't any of that. It was simply this work of God. Moses talks about it like this in Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy in chapter in chapter 7 uh, Moses says of, of, of all of Israel he says for you are a people holy to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of our, all peoples but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out, and so forth and so on. All that we find in, in God's choosing of Abraham and his offspring is that God chose to love him. And we say, but why? He says, because he loved him. And we say, well, you could just play that game all afternoon. We simply don't know other than it was God's grace, God's grace to him. Now, it's a bit surprising here, again, in chapter 12, that he comes upon this man, Abraham, or Abraham. And, and, and if, you've been, if, you, if we had time to go back to read since the flood, we find that it appears as if things continued on in the way they had even before the flood. Because rather than seeking after God, people gathered together and they decided to build a life for themselves. They decided to build a city for themselves. They decided to build... Uh, a nation for themselves that was secure and at peace, all without God. It happens in chapter 11. We <clears throat> call it the story of the incident of the Tower of Babel. And, and, and these, these people say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they, and they break brick for stone and, and, and so forth. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so, so here are all the people together. And, and, and they all speak the same language. And so they all come together and say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's exclude. God from all of this and let's build this so we can have this safe and secure life all without God. Now you know what happens God comes and he separates them all by language so they can no longer do such a thing which is horrible and a great danger for them to come together and build a tower and live without God. So in some sense both in terms of judgment and grace he separates them out by language, and, and now we're stuck at that point thinking, now what? God had made this great promise to Noah about, uh, it seemed to include everybody on the earth in some way, he's going to keep the earth going, and, and there'll be this common grace to all people and so forth, and, and now what? He's just scattered them and separated them. Is there any hope for the world at all? And then he pops up on this guy Abraham, and notice the promises that he makes first chapter 12 verse 1 he says now the Lord said to Abraham go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you so he said I'm going to take you to some land I'm going to have some land for you verse 2 and I will notice the I wills in this passage and I will make you a great nation so everything that they wanted to do in Babel they couldn't because they were doing it without God. And now God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you that, a great nation. 
and I will bless you and make your name great. In other words, they wanted to have a great name, but they wanted to have a great name without me. But, but I'm going to make your name great. Everyone will know you and all of that. But, but I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to bless you, this sense of, of blessing. You know, the great blessing from Numbers chapter 6, called the blessing of Moses and Aaron, the blessing of Aaron on the people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. In other words, may he provide for you. May he make his face to shine upon you. That is, you'll know the very presence of God. So in any circumstance, any situation, a blessing from God is that you'll know his gracious presence. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. You'll know his grace, how would you earn, but his favor towards you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. We could translate that as may the Lord lift up his face upon you, still looking at you, still being favorable, favorable towards you, his presence, and give you peace. Peace from enemies on the outside, peace from enemies on the inside, most especially peace with God. So he says, I'm going to bless you like that. I'm going to keep you, protect you. I'll be present with you. You'll know me. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. And here's the reason I'm going to do that, Abraham. It isn't just for you. Now, this is crucial. We won't be able to develop this whole thing right now. But as we work our way through all these covenants, we'll see glimpses of this. And the end, the last sermon on covenants will, will just put us on our faces. So that you will be a blessing. In other words... Get a hint right there that God's going to do something with all these scattered nations. He isn't just going to leave them all scattered. He's going to do something with all these scattered nations. He says, now I'm going to take you, Abraham, and I'm going to bring you to a particular place. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to draw attention to you and to your name and to your people and all of that. I'm going to put you in a place that will draw attention to you in such a way that as I bless you, you will be a blessing uh, to others. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. In other words, I'll protect you. And in you, all the families, nations, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the blessing you're going to be. Now, the New Testament tells us that when Abraham heard that, somehow, whether it was at that moment in time or somehow over time, he heard the gospel that would go to all the nations. We'll see that in a little bit. The, Abraham heard the gospel. This gospel that was going to go to all the nations. Because he had this sense. He would have known something of the promise of God in the Garden of Eden. That a day will come when God will send one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He's always looking for that seed. Where's that one coming from? And now he's saying, look, uh, I'm going to, to bless you. So that in you, all the families of the earth will be, in fact, blessed. And then we come to chapter 15, which is what I, I read uh, for our reading this morning. And, 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 and the situation here is that it appears as if, at least for Abraham, that nothing really has changed. He had the promise of, of this land. He had this promise to be a great nation. And so when you have the promise of being a great nation, then you must have people. Right? You can't be a great nation, just you. And you've got to have land. And so Abraham's looking at all of that. No, it, it, it's, it's, it's no small thing that when we're introduced to Abraham way back in the end of chapter 11, first part of chapter 12, that we're told that his wife cannot have children. 
And so you take a look at this situation. God has made these promises, yet Abraham's old and in the worst possible situation to have children. So chapter 15 begins, and God lays this out. He, he, he sort of gives him this, this kind of preamble in this vision of, of who God is. He says, fear not, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In other words, I'm your shield. I'll protect you. And I'll reward you. Your reward will be great. You'll have everything that you need. But, but Abraham, then, it's, it's almost as if he's been waiting for God to come back. And to talk to him about what's going on here. Because he says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In those days, if you didn't have an heir, uh, then you could appoint someone in your household, a servant, who would be your heir. And so basically Abraham's saying, I have no children. Thus, Eliezer is going to get it all. But, but you tell me I'm going to be a great nation and my name will be great. But he isn't even really from me. And so how's this all going to happen? So God... Um, um, Abraham then goes and reiterates it. He says, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household, Eliezer, will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. In Hebrew, it simply means count the uncountable. Count the uncountable. And he says, that's the way your offsprings will be. They'll be uncountable. And then, verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Now this word righteousness means in right relationship with God. There's nothing between you and now. Right relationship with God. How can we be in right relationship with God? We can only be in right relationship with God if we're holy. But Abraham wasn't. But yet God said, you trust me, all right? And I'll impute to you on the basis of faith. I'll impute to you. I'll I'll count to you. I'll I'll declare you to be right with me, righteous. It isn't because of what you've done. He hadn't done anything. It isn't because of any inherent, inherent righteousness within you. He had none. But he said, trust me. Those who trust me, I will impute Give, count, consider, declare you to be righteous in my, in my sight. Now this creates a huge problem for God to declare an unrighteous man righteous that won't be solved until Jesus came, solved in the sense that we understand it, and won't be explained until Romans chapter 3. We'll get to that someday. But just think about that. And the problem is, how can a just and righteous God declare someone to be righteous who isn't? How can he declare the guilty pardoned and still be just? That's the dilemma here. But God does that with Abraham, and he does it with others, as we read, who come to him indeed by faith. Trust me, he says. And I'll consider that. I'll count that. I'll impute then on the basis of faith righteousness to you. Then verse 7. And he said to him, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. And then verse 8 is the most wonderful question in all the Bible. I love reading the New Testament with the disciples of Jesus. I keep waiting for Peter to ask that question that nobody else would ask. But it's always the question everybody wants to ask, but nobody will ask. But Peter does. And don't you love him? Well, Abraham asked the question 
He says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, you might think that was rather brash of him to ask. He shouldn't have really asked that. He believed God. Why is now he asking this question? Well, the answer is because this is huge. We shouldn't begrudge him the question. It's huge. How, how can he be sure? How can he know? How can God communicate to him in such a way that he really know it? And this is why we've been talking about covenant. Because in the days of Moses, in the days of Abraham, obviously, there was a way that people related to one another by way of covenant, which gave certainty, which gave great assurance that what was promised would really be delivered. I don't know in our day what that would be. Because it seems like there's so little certainty in relationships. And it certainly isn't the word of another to a person. That, that, that seems to be broken all the time. Contracts get broken all the time. Although if there's an, an, uh, sufficient stipulations in the contract, it may well be that we realize it's too costly to break, so we won't. But, 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 but here, God is swearing, if you will, by his own name. The, the, the author of Hebrews picks that up in Hebrews and, and chapter 6. He says, verse 13, he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so there's this sense of, of, of God giving this promise. Verse 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement told fast to the hope set before us. And so, so here is this oath that God gives him. And he gives it by way of this rite of covenant. He said to him, to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old and all these other animals and birds and so forth. And, and that was quite typical. If you, if you really wanted to guarantee someone, rather than sign your name, you would cut a covenant with him. You would say, this will be my guarantee. And so he takes these animals, all except for the little birds that couldn't really be cut up very well, and he cuts them in half and he lays out the pieces. Now, normally, in a covenant relationship like this that's going to take place in this, this oath-taking covenant, the parties of the covenant will state their promises, their vows, their responsibilities, what they're going to do in relationship to each other. They would state them and walk between these pieces of dead animals. And you go, gross, and yes. But the reason they did it was to say that if I break any of these promises, be then it done unto me as done to these animals, that is, kill me. And you get, wow, God's going to participate in such a thing? And that's why we use often the word condescend. That God condescends to us. He comes down to us, if you will. The whole incarnation of Jesus is a condescension. He gave up his right to glory and came to be like us. That's, that's a bit of a step down, isn't it? It's a condescending. When God condescends to us, John Calvin used to say that God speaks to us with a lisp, meaning he speaks to us in baby talk. Yeah, because he comes to us like that. And this is that sense of God condescending to us and saying, I'm going to use a form that you understand. I'm going to use a form that exists in your culture to convince you, but I'm going to twist it. 
in a way that will really convince you. So Abraham does all this. Then verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. So he's in a kind of a trance-like state. And behold, dread, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. That's often language used when, when God is about to appear to someone. Then the Lord said, and he gives him these promises, Know for certain. So don't ever doubt this, Abraham. Know for certain. And then he goes on to tell him, your offspring, wow, he's going to have offspring, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and there will be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. This should be coming to us. We know what this is, and we, knew that the, we know that this took place. But I'll bring judgment on Egypt, on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions, which they did. Uh, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. It is speaking to Abraham about how he will die. You'll be buried in good old age. And then they shall come back here in the fourth generation, that is, after having been in Egypt, and we'll know about the wilderness time. And then they'll come... And they'll take the land because then it will be right for judging the Amorites. But notice verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, God is often seen, imaged. This theophany, this presence of God often comes in fire. Moses would know that at the bush. Moses would know that as he took the Israelites out of Egypt and there was a fire by night. And he would know that as he went up on the smoky Mount Sinai, the presence of God. So this is the presence of God. Now Abraham's probably either still in this trance-like sleep but can understand what's going on or he's woken up in some sense and watching this. But he's not participating at all. He's just off to the side. You would think that both of them would go through the pieces, but they don't both go through the pieces. Only God goes through the pieces. When the sun had gone down and it's dark, behold, a smoking, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made, really the word literally is cut, a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I give you this land and so forth and so on. What God is doing here is taking upon himself the curse of the covenant if it is broken. Um, One author puts it like this. He writes, In the second covenantal encounter between the Lord and Abraham, Genesis 15, Abraham sought assurance of the promise, and the Lord provided that assurance, his own word, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, Hebrews 6.13. The Lord presented his word in the form of a special covenant ceremony, a self-maledictory oath. Big word, it just means a punishment, a penalty. That was common to many cultures at that time. In this ceremony, two persons would cut a covenant by mutually agreeing on the conditions uh, in their covenant, and then by dividing one or more animals in half and walking down the bloody path between the cut pieces. This gruesome and solemn ceremony showed that each party had promised to abide by and accomplish the conditions agreed upon, or else have his own blood shed like that of the divided animals. In other words, a person taking part in a self-maledictory or self-cursing oath was saying, may this same end befall the covenant breaker. Well, the self-maledictory ceremony in Genesis 15 is rather odd. 
when compared to the normal practice of the ritual. Normally, both parties to the covenant would walk through the animal halves together. But here, only a representation, a lamp, of the Lord passes through. Perhaps, by passing through the pieces by himself, the Lord was emphasizing the fulfillment of the promises on the pain of his own death, rather than Abraham's, although both were obligated to be faithful. In essence, the Lord brought the curse of death upon himself to ensure that the promises were kept. In the end, we know that in order to accomplish what was promised, the Lord had to do just that. God in Christ would have to become a curse for us so that we could be brought into union and communion with him. God is saying, if I break this, I die. He was saying, Abraham, if you break this, I'll take the curse as well. That is breathtaking. And God is saying, listen, you can know this for sure because it's all mine. Now, that doesn't mean that Abraham didn't have responsibilities. He did. Because when when God comes to him then in chapter 17, he gives him a sign of circumcision and he says, walk blamelessly before me. That is, be faithful to this covenant, Abraham. But we know all the while there's forgiveness in the midst of this. We know all the while this is going to happen. God says, know for certain that, that this is going to happen because I will make certain it does. And nothing, nothing short of God himself being extinguished could keep it from happening. And of course that can't happen because God is. That you can know this for certain. Now we know the difficulties. You know, there were uh, the difficulty of Sarah. She couldn't have children. How is it that that could happen? That they were going to have a child? And you know the story, perhaps, of Sarah and, and Hagar, and how she gives his her maidservant to Abraham, and and he takes her, and she bears his son. And at that point, I don't know what to expect of God. Why wouldn't he say, "Oh, hmm, why don't you just? Well, I'll just start over." But he doesn't. He comes to them and he says, listen, I know you're old, but I will give you a child from Sarah. Abraham laughs. God says, good name. (laughs) The word Isaac means ha, ha, ha. means laughter. And so they would name their son Isaac. Sarah hears about it. She laughs as well. Hmm, Confirmed the name. Isaac it will be. But it gives him, God does, this sign of the covenant And this covenant sign is to help. Signs, seals really, of covenant is to help us to say, yes, this really is authentic. This really is true. When I'm finished with all of this, I'll spend one Sunday on baptism and one Sunday on communion. So we'll talk about that covenant sign. But but this covenant sign that, that God gives to Abraham is this odd sign, it seems to us, perhaps, of circumcision. But it wasn't odd then. It was quite well known. It was really only the Philistines who were exceptions to this. But God, again, puts a twist on all of this. The sign of circumcision comes as, as a sign of blessing and curse. A blessing included because those who are circumcised are included in some sense in the promise that comes to Abraham that they will be a great nation, they will be blessed, and that they'll have this land. But also it's a sign that if you don't receive the sign, or if you receive the sign and are unfaithful, you'll be cut off. And so it's a blessing and a curse. A benediction, if you will, something good, and a malediction, something bad, as well, symbolized in all of this. And it's a sign of cleansing. 
But the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4 as he speaks of Abraham's circumcision, he speaks of this circumcision in a way that says that it really is a sign of righteousness by faith. Verse 9 of Romans 4. Paul writes, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal that is something to, to authenticate God's word. A seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, God says to Abraham, you're going to have many offsprings, you're going to be a great nation. What was he speaking of? He was speaking not only of physical offspring, we see the sign of the circumcisions having something obviously to do with reproduction. But he was speaking beyond that as well. That Abraham, your circumcision is a seal of the righteousness that you have by faith. And what that means is that your real offspring are going to be the ones who come by faith. Now, as time goes on, God gives more promises to Abraham. For instance, the end of in, in uh, chapter twenty-two, He speaks to Abraham of of this same promise as well. After Abraham, you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, and he is told by God to sacrifice his son, and he moves to do that. God stays his hand. Isaac was the safest person on the planet that day. But he proves through all of that his faith and God says I'll provide so he says by myself Genesis 22 16 I've sworn declares the Lord because you've done this and have not withheld your son your only son I'll surely bless you and I'll multiply your offspring and the stars as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice a day comes when a young virgin named Mary hears from an angel about one who is to come she relates it to Abraham in her hymn her song of praise she puts it like this in Luke in chapter 1 Verse 54, of God, she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She's carrying this very one who would come, this very one who would come to bring peace, this very one who this old man Simeon says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. In fact, as Jesus is speaking to Pharisees, he 
speaks of Abraham as well. There's a, a big debate. Jesus talks to the Pharisees, these religious leaders of his day, and, and he says to them, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they say, we've always been free because we're children of Abraham. And for Jesus, that's such an enigma. How can you be children of Abraham and reject me? And he says, oh, you're not really children of Abraham. Well, they said, yes, we're children of God. He says, you're not really children of Abraham. You're not really children of God. You're children of the devil. Even though by ethnicity, by race, you are children of Abraham. Not really. Because Abraham believed and you don't. In fact, of Abraham, Jesus puts it like this. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And you go, well, when did he see it? When did he see the day of Jesus? When did he look forward to that? And and the answer is when he got the promise that said, in you, all the nations, all the families of the world will be blessed. Because he was able to play connect, connect the dots. One's going to come from the seed of the woman. And that seed's going to come and bless all the families of the earth. In fact, almost done in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle speaks of it like this. Verse 7. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Then Paul goes on, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one in your offspring, who is Christ. For this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. You see, God promises in Genesis 3.15 that one's going to come. He calls out this man, Abraham. Abraham, and he says it's coming through you. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And miraculously, it does. And Abraham wonders, how can I know this is going to be sure? God makes a covenant with him. Something dies and God says, that's my oath. That this will come even by way of my death. And it comes by way of the death of his son. The one who takes the curse of our sin upon himself, Jesus. 
And then, of course, we know that in the death of Jesus, that the nations were blessed. Revelation chapter 5 puts it like this, as John sees and hears this great song being sung in glory. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And that earth will come, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. He'll wipe every tear away from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God came to Abraham and he said... Through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. You'll be a nation, kingdom, a land. And what do we find? People, by faith, children of Abraham. We find from every nation of the world, we find a land. Nothing less than the new earth. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life I say, God, how can I believe this? And he said, well, I've made a covenant. For I did not keep back my own son, but I I gave him up. He said, look to him. Bertrand Russell, atheist, collected a group of essays together in a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. Wrote this about faith. He said, faith is a conviction that cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. Now, he meant that to be a slam against Christians. He's saying, you Christians, you believe, even though there's so much evidence to the contrary. And we say, well, we understand what you're saying. There's a great deal of pain. There's all kinds of tragedy. And the way we would put it, worse than he would put it, is there's tremendous sin in the world and even in us. And we wonder, how could this ever be? But not all the evidence is contrary. We have the evidence of Christ. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that you would enable us to cling to Christ.